Hi, everyone. Let's go into time of the message. Uh, we are continuing on in our series, the book of Mark, or the Gospel of Mark. Today, we'll be looking at uh, Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 13. A short passage. Chapter 1, 9 through 13. I'll be reading for us. And uh, we'll be praying, and we'll be going into time of the message. Here's the word of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That is God's word. Uh, please bow, bow your heads with me and uh, let me pray for us and we'll start. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your constant grace towards us. That our destiny is not dependent on how we feel about our lives, about ourselves, you know, our good days or bad days. Our foundation, our rock, is your gospel. That Jesus Christ died on our behalf so that we have your son's righteousness. And that is our security and foundation. Thank you for that. So we can always come before you expecting more from you because you're so willing and ready to shower us with blessings, many blessings, because all heavenly blessings are in Christ, and we are in Christ through your grace. So Lord, may you pour your blessings this time as we look into your word. We believe that you're present speaking these very words through these uh, wor uh, words on a page, as well as through an, an unworthy servant like myself. I pray that you would um, speak clearly, um, and unapologetically, so we can be transformed and have confidence and power and strength to live for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, again, we're continuing on. Uh, in this gospel that really mainly talks about who Jesus is. And I hope that as we study uh, on Sundays as well as in our life groups that we really gain uh, not just a head knowledge but more heart knowledge of who Jesus is that can be true bread for our lives. Uh, for this passage, uh, three points as usual so you can follow along. Uh, first point, seeing Jesus uh, beyond the surface. And second, seeing Jesus for who he is. 
And third, seeing Jesus in the wilderness. The title of the message is uh, seeing Jesus uh, or seeing the real Jesus. So let's see Jesus together through this passage. First, uh, seeing Jesus beyond the surface. We'll have to do a quick recap before we jump into the first verse. Uh, In the previous passage last week, uh, we saw John the Baptist uh, coming as a forerunner of Jesus, and he was setting setting the stage for Jesus. And he was saying in in verses 7 and 8, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, uh, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here, the people around him who are hearing uh, these words from John, they must have been hyped up about this hero figure that's coming after John. They must be anticipating of what he may look like. Um, and, And now, in today's passage, from this background, Jesus finally shows up on the stage, and here he re- we read in verse 9 of his appearance. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So that's a grand entrance of Jesus. And, and let me try to give you some context here so you can kind of feel with the people who were encountering Jesus at this scene. And I can tell you right away that this wasn't impressive. Uh, To the point that the people may not have recognized uh, this was that person that was to come, anticipated by John the Baptist. There are two clues of why the people would not have been impressed by this entrance. First reason, Jesus came from a little town called Nazareth, which was a part of this province called Galilee. If you go to the next slide, it's a little picture for you there. Um, So Galilee, the province, was north of Judea. And uh, Judea is the place where John the Baptist and his people came from. The fact of the matter was that Judeans looked down upon Galileans. It's mainly because Judeans were supposed to be the more sophisticated uh, people culturally and religiously because uh, Jerusalem, the capital city, was a part of Judea. And the Galileans, in contrast, were known as uneducated fishermen. And within that province, Galilee, the town Nazareth was considered so insignificant and shabby that a disciple named Nathaniel in John chapter 1, who was a Galilean himself, he said dismissively, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Ouch there. So Nazareth is is very insignificant as a town. Just to illustrate that, um, has anyone in this room heard of this town called Cobalt, Idaho? You have? Okay. You shouldn't have, but... um, (laughs) I was trying to find any like, random town on the map, and this is what I found. Anyways, no offense, I'm sorry. But if somebody told you that a very famous scientist who would come up with the 
a, a cure for the coronavirus and, and the pandemic would be coming from this town, Cobalt, Idaho. Would you believe that? You shouldn't. <laughs> it's hard because Idaho is a great state. Hopefully nobody's from Idaho. But it's a great state, but it's more known for potatoes. It's not known for the cutting-edge medical technology, like you know, LA or Boston maybe, or uh, wherever, even Minnesota perhaps. Um, and, and that's the, the significance of this town. And likewise, Nazareth of Galilee then wouldn't have made Jesus look like a hero, the one that people have been waiting for. It's so insignificant as a town. Secondly, in the verse, we see that Jesus was baptized by John. And that's puzzling because John told people that the, the one who would come after him, the one who everybody should look into, look forward to, uh, he's the one that's going to be baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. But here we see Jesus is the one getting baptism by John. Besides, the people at the time were getting baptized by John uh, and they were confessing their sins to God like we saw last week. Like, does that mean Jesus was sinful too? I mean, that, that was the question people might have been asking. Like, you know, he's supposed to be above us, but he's just like us. He's getting baptized by us and like, does that mean he's sinful too? Uh, but by the way, uh, the reason why Jesus though sinless, as we know, was baptized by John, is because Jesus had to identify with the sinful humanity in order to be their savior. Uh, on the cross, Jesus would be dying as a human on behalf of other humans. That was the purpose of his baptism, even though he was uh, sinless. But the people couldn't see that, obviously. So they must have had a hard time connecting that divine being who, who were to baptize people with the Holy Spirit, you know, with this Jesus, um, you know, helplessly receiving baptism from John. So all in all, we can identify with people uh, at that time that Jesus may not have looked like a hero. But he is, as we will see. But the people at the time, likely judged by his looks and background, uh, where he's from, that, that Jesus was insignificant and not worthy of their worship. You know, they were judging the book by its cover, so to speak. And he was, Jesus was not honored at the time. Um, have you seen this movie called Knives Out by Chauvin's? Okay. Uh, maybe half of you. So my wife and I uh, had heard of this movie and had seen its trailers and different scenes of the movie on, on YouTube and things like that. And my wife, uh, she's really into those like murder mystery stories and like movies with a lot of blood and things like that. Um, bless her soul, but uh, I'm not like that. I, you know, like more dramas and, you know, things that are more about just, you know, peaceful storyline type of thing. So, uh, I really resisted seeing this movie, although my wife kept, you know, wanting to see, see this movie. I resisted because, uh, based on the trailers and 
different, you know, clips. Uh, they made it look like it's the type of movie that has a lot of blood and, you know, gory scenes. Uh, so I, I resisted for a long time. But being a loving husband that I am, I finally gave in last week and we watched the movie together. And I can tell you that it blew my mind. It was so unexpectedly good uh, with this good plots and twists. And I really enjoyed the good acting by the actors in the movie. And, and it, was, it was really nothing like the trailers that I saw of the movie and the out of context scenes that I watched on YouTube. So what, the, what happened was that I, I might have, I, I could have missed out on this good movie if I just relied on um, the trailers that I saw of the movie. I'm saying this because it's similar to what was happening when Jesus was appearing to the scene. The people around John the Baptist, uh, they were judging Jesus by his trailers, so to speak, you know, and, and what they saw on the outside. And they were missing out on the real deal, the one that might have had you know, the key to uh, the mysteries and questions in the world. And that's still true in, in these, these, these days and this day and age where many people still judge Jesus by the trailers, so to speak, that they have seen. Like three possibilities. First, you know, they have read about Jesus in different literatures or they grew, they grew up heard about, hearing about Jesus from different people, which led to the conclusion that he's just a good moral teacher, good example, but no more than that. Another possibility is, you know, people, you know, might have been turned off by Christians, Christ followers. So they concluded that Christ, their, their, their Lord, uh, was a fanatic. No respect there. And lastly, some people judged Jesus because they had a lot of questions, good questions, good philosophical, intellectual questions, such as maybe, you know, why is there suffering in the world if God is good? Good question, difficult question. So they couldn't really jump in to Jesus because of that presupposition. And I want to say, if you're joining us, this service, um, from that place, that you um, are having these presuppositions about Jesus, and it's really have, making you have a hard time uh, believing in Jesus, I want to gently encourage you that you go deeper. Because if you see real Jesus beyond those trailers and hearsays, you may be blown away. And I also want to speak to you know, those of us here who do follow Jesus. And I want to challenge you. Uh, I could say, perhaps even for myself too, you might be okay with uh, who Jesus is because of the trailers that you grew up seeing about Jesus. Uh, that you might be missing out on the real picture of Jesus. Got to go deeper. Uh, Got to go beyond what you grew up with. And there you may see the real Jesus and have the true, unstoppable passion and devotion for this real being. So we see Jesus. We are to see Jesus uh, for, uh, for who he is, and that's what we're going to look at. But we just looked at uh, seeing Jesus beyond the surface. But second, seeing Jesus for who he is. So now in the following verses, we'll discover the real Jesus uh, being revealed by God himself. Verse 10, 
It says, and when he came up, when Jesus came up out of the water, out of baptism, uh, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And um, I think it would be helpful for us to have the imagination, uh, not imagination for uh, fictional things, rather, but imagination for uh, the real things. That's what's happening in this passage. So, so picture with me the scene. Um, in the verse that we just read, we see the heaven uh, being torn open. I think the good picture to have is the scene of you opening the curtains in the dark room. And, and as, as soon as you do that, the, the, the light, bright light from outside, you know, shines through the crack and you, you brighten uh, your own eyes as well as the dark room, right? And that's what's happening here. God is, so to speak, opening the curtains and, and there comes the heavenly vision from the glorious throne. And God is turning on the, the heavenly screen, so to speak, and he's showing us the vision of his son. Again, Imagine with me. And in that scene, in that vision, uh, the spirit is as uh, looking like a dove descending on Jesus. Uh, we need some Old Testament context there. In Old Testament, the spirit would descend or rush upon somebody whom God has chosen for specific tasks. For example, you know, while Samuel uh, was anointing David to be uh, the king of Israel, to deliver uh, them from their enemies, the spirit rushed upon David. That's a good picture there. So back to our scene, back to our passage, what's happening here is that God is anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit for the task of establishing God's kingdom as its king and saving people into the kingdom from their sins. That's the picture that's showing up here. And we go on in verse 11. It says, and a voice, you see here, there's visual and audio here. Mark really wants us to feel this scene with our senses. Verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Here, God's voice, he is speaking directly to Jesus. God is identifying Jesus to be his son, and uh, from Psalm 2-7, uh, we uh, learn that the words son of God can be a title uh, for the Messiah king, Messianic king, who will be ruling over uh, his, his enemies in the world. So God the Father is identifying here uh, Jesus as the king Messiah that is to come, that has come. Uh, but the, the word the son, his son, can be taken literally, obviously. So, uh, but then he says, not just son, but God says he is his beloved son with whom that he's very pleased, well pleased. What it, what it shows is that there's something going on between God and um, God the Father and God the Son. Meaning that there's love, beloved love, and delight and, and pleasure between the Father and the Son, which shows that Jesus is a unique Son. He's not, although uh, those who are in Christ are called sons and daughters of, uh, of God, so there is that relationship, but between God and Jesus, it's a, it's a different class. There is intimacy that
that is none like anything in the world. So what he's saying is that Jesus here in this whole scene, God is saying in this vision that he's affirming and validating the identity of Jesus as his exclusive precious son in the same God at Trinity uh, whom he has chosen and anointed to establish his kingdom on earth and save people into it. In other words, uh, beyond what Jesus may have you know, uh, been seen on the surface, like we saw earlier, God is putting his cosmic seal of approval that Jesus indeed is the one that John spoke about, that he's the only one everyone must pay attention to as their Savior, as their Lord. And therefore, you know, Mark, as, as he's writing this account to us, to readers, us, you know, he wants us to, he's urging us to witness this revelation from God directly and that we must treat Jesus accordingly with utmost seriousness and complete devotion because if this is real sin, then we are doomed if we do not take Jesus seriously. Uh, for me, personally, it's been about uh, almost 20 years since I started driving. And at this point in my life, uh, when I drive, you know, it's just simply a routine, right? Like, when I first started learning, I was like so excited. Oh, man, you know, like, mom and dad, please drive with me. But these days, I'm like, okay, I'll drive, you know, because I have to. Uh, and when I drive, I'm just very mindless. I don't really think about anything except where I'm, where I'm going, you know, and how long it takes. But there is something that uh, makes me uh, alert extremely when I drive. And that is a police car. Okay, I'm just mindless when I'm driving, but then like, when I see the silhouette of the, the police car, you know, behind me or next to me, driving me, um, I am on, on alert. And I start, I start thinking about, man, you know, how am I driving? You know, am I at the right speed? You know, do I have any, you know, unnecessary lights on? And, and am I in the right lane? You know, all these things, like, come to my mind. And I, and I do that because, why? Because the law of the land gave the police the seal of approval and authority so that, you know, there's a consequence if I disobey, you know, what they prescribe for me, right? And same thing. Um, the glorious God of heaven gave Jesus his seal of approval and authority as his king. And if we take the police car seriously enough that we examine all of our driving skills and situations, we got to take Jesus even more, much more seriously because he is God, he is king over every aspect of our lives. And of course, I'm not trying to say that you know, Jesus is to be considered a cosmic police, you know, trying to get us you know, whenever we do, do something wrong. Uh, he's God of grace. And yet, his authority goes beyond, much beyond that of police. Therefore, we uh, must uh, take him seriously in every aspect of our lives. So we must ask, you know, do I live like Jesus is my king 
and authority in my family life, again, in every aspect of our lives, in, in, in my family life, in my work, in my school life, in my leisure, in my thinking, in my speaking, in my behaving. Is he the king? And let me share this quote with you. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Uh, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or someone, something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Lewis is basically saying that we must not treat Jesus like one of those cars you know, passing us by when we are driving, saying, yeah, yeah, I, I listen to him. He's a great teacher. We've got to emulate what he's doing. But I do that whenever I want to do do that. No. He is God-endorsed Son of God, and therefore He's a real deal that requires all our devotion and faith in every aspect of our lives. You know, using the words from last week when we studied the passage, Jesus has to be the hero and the main character of our story in every aspect. So we have to see Jesus for who He is. And lastly, seeing Jesus in the wilderness. And here, just like any good story, there's a twist in the storyline. Because we see that immediately, after the high point of God's endorsement of Jesus, you know, Jesus goes into a rather low point. So we see that in verse 12. Please follow with me. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Uh, here, just to clarify, uh, Jesus and, the, and John the Baptist were already in the wilderness, according to the, the passage from last week. But here, when it says wilderness, it's talking about the Spirit driving Jesus into further wilderness where you know, Jesus would be alone, that he would be away from society. Meaning that here we have the scene uh, in which you know, Jesus is utterly uh, isolated from anybody uh, that he knew. And notice here that it was a spirit that drove Jesus there. It wasn't Jesus, but it was a spirit that drove Jesus there. And then we go on in verse 13. It says, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. There, the 40 days in wilderness reminds us of the 40 years uh, in the wilderness by the people of Israel after they got out of Egypt. Uh, at that time, God was testing Israel before they would enter into the, the land of Canaan and become a nation for, for his name. And, and since Jesus came to save Israel, uh, the, which is the people of God, uh, Jesus is again identifying with his people, just like we saw in baptism. 
Jesus is identifying with this, his people so that he can be his savior. So he humbly submits to the same testing, although he needs no testing, right? And what's interesting as we look at this um, wording here is that the God tests us while Satan tempts us. You see that in, in the text there that Jesus was tempted by Satan, but we see from the whole context that God was testing uh, Jesus or Israel. What that means is that Satan uses you know, hardships in our lives or, and sometimes good gifts in our lives uh, to draw us away from God, to draw us away from obeying God. And his purpose is always to destroy, destroy us, destroy our spiritual lives. But God is sovereign over evil, and he uses the same things, good things and bad things in our lives, to grow us into people that he wants us to be. And what that means is that God's testing, you know, when we hear the word test, especially you know, on this you know, campus setting, when you hear the word test, you're like, oh, man, you know, I have to study. You know, if not, I'm going to fail and I'm going to disqualify for my program or whatever. Uh, but that's very different from God's test. God's testing um, is more so, uh, its purpose is to, you know, not to give us grades, uh, but to chisel us and to grow our character to be stronger for his purposes. That's what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20. Uh, it says, as for you, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Uh, if you know the story, Joseph suffered you know, many things at the hand of his evil brothers, but God used all those struggles and sufferings to build Joseph up to be the prime minister for his name in Egypt. And that's the power of God over evil. He uses evil to grow us, to be useful for his purposes. And here's one evidence that God uses these bad things or trials for our good in the text is that, that he is present through our trials and he protects us through it. There in the text, we see that Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, meaning that the wild animals are harmful, right? They're untamed. So there's physical danger for Jesus, but also there's spiritual danger for Jesus uh, coming from Satan himself. And it says the angels, God provided angels to minister to Jesus, likely to serve his physical need. And we also saw earlier that Holy Spirit protects him for his spiritual needs. In other words, if that's true for Jesus, um, God, during our time of trial, he is present with us and he perseveres through us and he protects us spiritually and physically altogether. And that's his promise. And all that to say, in this passage we see that, um, or rather, the passage after this, today's passage, we will see that Jesus will be starting his public ministry what that means is, the pattern is that, you know, God the Spirit drives his people to go through the time of wilderness and trials and testing before, again, God uses us for his ministry. And that was true for Jesus, although, again, Jesus did not need testing, 
but he was identifying uh, with his people by going through the wilderness himself. And, and here, let me clarify uh, three things here. I think it would be helpful for us as we think about what testing means in our lives because truthfully, uh, what this means is that if you are a Christ follower, testing and time of trials and desert and wilderness is not if, but it's when. That God will drive you to here. The Spirit drove him, meaning God will dri drive us to hard times in our lives. And, and that's the truth. And here are just three things, the, the more detailed things about these trials. I think it would be helpful for us as we wrap our heads around it. First, you know, whenever believers go through trials and tough times, the truth is that it's not because God doesn't love you. Did you hear that? The tough times in Christians' lives is not because God doesn't love you. Because remember, before Jesus was driven to the desert, what did he say? God said, you are my beloved son. And immediately, God drives him into the desert. We've got to remember that. It's in love that God drives us, drives his people through the period of trials for what's best for us, namely our holiness that we see Hebrews in Hebrews 12. Second, wilderness is a lonely place where we cannot help but that we rely on God uh, as opposed to rely on ourselves or other human means. In other words, the, the trial period, wilderness is designed for us to be humble, become humble, to make us humble and break our pride and self-reliance. That's the purpose. We got to be humble. And thirdly, this is important, Jesus has won the ultimate trial on our behalf on the cross. Uh, you know, in, in our passage, Jesus was not completely alone, but the ultimate trial on the cross Jesus was utterly abandoned, even by his own father, God the Father, to the point that he cried out. He will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus endured that trial, and he triumphed uh, by his resurrection. And as a result, he gave the gift of salvation to the world. What this means is that for Christ's followers, there is always hope in our trials. It's because Jesus was utterly forsaken on our behalf. We will not be forsaken because of that. We may feel like we're forsaken when we go through hard times, but that feeling betrays us, betrays the reality because Jesus was the only one that was forsaken by God so that his people will not be forsaken in any tough times but that whenever we go through hard times, just as there was redemption on the other side of the trial of Jesus, for our trials too, there will be redemption. As a result of the trial that we go through, uh, we will come out as gold, that we will be better off spiritually. That's the purpose of the time of wilderness for Christ followers. 
Uh, for me personally, uh, before I came to CLC, and I was a youth pastor for uh, three and a half years. And uh, just being really honest here, uh, when I started the youth ministry uh, a while ago now, you know, I was about to finish my seminary education, and I was pretty puffed up. <laughs> I, had a lot of, I, I had accumulated a lot of knowledge from the school that I was going to, and, and I really thought that you know, I could change the world um, you know, with all the knowledge that I accumulated. So I went in, into this ministry thinking, man, you know, like, I got this type of mentality. But lo and behold, uh, I think it was probably one of the most humbling experiences in my life. Uh, just like any ministry, you know, there's always situation after situations that I cannot control simply, right? And you know, th there's are, there are relational struggles, there are the logistical challenges in any ministry. And so I was so stressed out and I felt already alone uh, for those years. And if you looked at my journal at the time that I uh, wrote, wrote my feelings out, uh, which I still do in my journals, um, you'll probably hear a lot of words like despair and hopelessness. It was you know, quintessentially depression that I experienced. But at the same time, in, the, in those pages, you also find words like humility and God, you love me. It's because I learned humility during that time, realizing that it's not about me. Ministry and Christian life is not about me. It's not about you. Our lives are all about God and what He accomplishes. That's humility. And also, as you go through the, the time of desert and wilderness that, that I went through, brother, uh, that was a time that I felt most loved by God because I was clinging on to God because there was nobody else that I could hang on to during that time of trial. And, and I kept saying, God, you are my everything. You're my refuge. You're my hiding place. Um, you're my rock. You're my shelter. You're my everything. Apart from you, where would I go? You have my everything. And you love me. I need nothing else in my life. Desert. That's the result. You become, you come out of the desert uh, wanting more of Jesus. Seeing the true Jesus, the real Jesus. So I'm not trying to curse us here, but as a pastor that loves you, trying to give you the real picture of Christian life, if God really loves you, He will put you through time of trial. And I really empathize with you that it's a hard time, tough time, that I would cry with you. But in the bigger scheme of things, God is doing something that he knows to be best for you. Uh, it could look like for some of us, maybe your career path not going the way you like. For some of us, you know, your relationships not working out the way you expected. And for some of us, you go through a very dry time spiritually. You don't feel God's presence. You just feel abandoned by God. The praying is so boring and you just keep falling asleep. Um, Desert time. It can look in many different ways. But whenever you go through that time, 
May you remember, may you remember that you are loved by God and that God is making you into something better for his kingdom. Because without that humbling, God cannot use us. And without that humbling, we cannot know and love Jesus better. And let me add one more thing as I finish. I think this applies to our church too. <laughs> Just to be real, right? I mean, we talked about Israel uh, being tested by God for 40 years to be a nation for God. Uh, what that means is that as a church too, if not already, we will go through time of trial where things may not look or feel exciting anymore. Um, where we just feel like mundane routine every week or every day as a church. But may we, can I encourage us, if that happens for any of us or as a church, as a corporate body, may we cling on to God in prayer, in humility, and may God be our one love. And we cling on to Him no matter what happens, no matter what we feel, that Jesus would be our first love as a church. Um, can we pray just for a minute, um, just processing this passage? Again, let me repeat that uh, we should not, we must not uh, use this to uh, minimize our pain. And what I shared with you about testing from God uh, must not be used as you know, telling others who are suffering, hey, you know, God is testing you, you know, endure through it. Or tell it to yourself, uh, please do not do that. Um, the purpose is more so for us to um, get closer to the heart of God rather than telling others uh, who are suffering. Testing is hard. But what we do gain from this passage is that no matter what we go through in life, if you are in Christ, if you have gone beyond the surface level picture of Jesus and you got the real picture of Jesus as we saw in this passage and you committed yourself to Christ, you know, God in His love for you will put you through the time of desert, time of wilderness, time of trial. And without this understanding of why God does that, I think it'll be hard. It'll be harder than uh, as it is. So may we come before God um, as we are right now no matter what you're going through right now in your life, uh, may we come before God looking at the true picture, the real picture of Jesus, the exalted King of the universe before whom we cannot fake, before whom we can't just dismiss Him as just an option. He is King. We fall down before him. We say with John the Baptist, we're not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. We fall 
we fall down. But in that we also meditate and enjoy His love for us. And with that love, with the assurance of His presence, we go through anything, trusting that God is producing something amazing and beautiful in my life for His kingdom. Can we pray? Um, just meditating on these things uh, before we finish with the song. Let's pray together.